0: This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. And the best person to get an answer like that from would be Jesus. Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. Thanks for submitting them. In addition to that answer, open the book of Revelation. God wants you to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And he wants you to have assurance about being ready for the second coming of Jesus. This is Line Upon Line. Welcome. I'm John Bradshaw. With me, Eric Flickinger. And on Line Upon Line, we have the opportunity to ask and answer your Bible questions. Eric, thanks for being with me today. Great to be here again. I enjoy Line Upon Line. It seems that we receive an awful lot of questions at It Is Written. This gives us a chance to answer them. And I remember having a teacher once who said, if the question has occurred to you, then lots of other people have had that question as well.
1: In fact, we get a lot of questions that are very similar one to another here at Line Upon Line. And so from time to time, you may hear us answer questions that are similar one to another, and that's just because we get a lot of them. And I think this
0: is one of them. Let me start with a question from Ward. And Ward's question is, is baptism essential for salvation? It seems to me this is kind of a two-sided question, so I wonder if you can give a... Two-sided answer. Uh, well, the
1: answer is absolutely yes, and at the same time, absolutely no. It kind of goes both ways. So how is a person saved? Uh, Paul addresses this on a number of occasions, and in one case he says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through
0: faith. So we're saved by grace through faith, not That's right. by baptism. Now we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ, right? That's right. Right. Uh, I think if we ask it this way, it, it, makes, it makes it clear. Are we saved by not murdering? No. Are we saved by not coveting? Let's stretch that a little further. Are we saved by keeping the commandments? Not at all. Other than, or sorry, that sounds like I'm contradicting. While that's true, can you really be saved without keeping the commandments? If you're not keeping
1: the commandments, that's an indicator that something is wrong in your spiritual life. If you have no desire whatsoever to keep the commandments, in fact, a desire to live contrary to them, That's a red flag. Okay, so bring this back to baptism for us. All right, so do you have to be baptized in order to be saved? The answer I think we've we've covered pretty clearly so far is no. However, why would a person not want to be saved? In Mark 16, 16, Jesus says, he that believeth and is baptized the same shall be saved. So we see that baptism is important. In fact, it was one of the last things that Jesus told his
0: followers. That's correct. It's very clear that while we can say it's not essential for salvation to be baptized, because think of the thief on the cross. Mm -hmm. We have no indication that he was ever baptized. There's also no proof that he wasn't for that matter. But we expect that he was not baptized. Uh, While we would not say it is essential to be saved, I think we would say, saved people will be baptized. Uh,
1: That's right. What does baptism represent? It represents an expression of your faith in Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, your belief that he died and rose again on your behalf. And it's also, uh, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, a representation of us dying to our old
0: life of sin and resurrection to a new life in Jesus. So who wouldn't want to do that? That's right. And if you understand what the Bible says when the Bible speaks very plainly about baptism and you look God in the face and say, no, not doing it, that indicates that you've really got a problem in your relationship with God. That's right. So is it essential for salvation? No, but yes, but no. But the thing is, saved people will be baptized. I hope that helps, Ward, thanks for your question. the okay. so next question.
1: We get another question, this one comes from Joe. And Joe asks, or says, I was raised in a Christian home, but studied at the university and read the works of many scholars and became an atheist. How can you believe that Christianity is true with all the evidence to the contrary?
0: Hold on, hold on a minute. With all the evidence to the contrary, Pastor Flickinger, what would some of the evidence be uh, contrary to the fact that Christianity is true?
1: Well, you've got a lot of theologians, I wouldn't even call them theologians, philosophers out there who have the idea that Christianity isn't true. Yeah, but where's the evidence? We read in the question, with all the evidence to the contrary, come on, Joe, where's, where's the evidence? You'd have to look pretty hard to find evidence that it isn't true because there is a preponderance of evidence that the Bible, that Christianity is true.
0: Yeah. So what do you think people are talking about when they say, here's the evidence that Christianity is doesn't work or Christianity isn't true.
1: Well, you've got a lot of people who will look at science or science so-called evidence that, uh, let's say for example, that creation didn't take place as you find it in the Bible, but you have archeologists who will say millions and millions of years ago, thousands and thousands of, hundreds of thousands of years ago. Uh, But if you look at what's happening in the world, look at at science, look at, uh, look at, history through a biblical
0: lens, you're gonna find that everything lines up very nicely. It absolutely does. I, I recall being at a, at a museum and the, 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 the message of the museum, part of the message was the mu- of the museum was, the facts don't speak for themselves. Mm. So you look at a rock, the rock doesn't tell you I was created or I was not created, the rock is a rock. And now you gotta figure out how to, how to calculate the age of the rock or the origin of the rock or the or the animal species, for example. And if you come at it from an evolutionist bent, you're gonna be able to line up your evolutionary arguments that say, oh, there was no special creation. If you come at it from a creationist point of view, you can do precisely the same. Okay, so Joe asked, um, how can you believe Christianity is true? Where would you begin? Oh, by the way, I asked you where to begin and I'm gonna continue. Joe writes that she uh, listened to, what did you say, Listen to many scholars? Scholars, yeah. yeah. Okay. What do you expect the scholar to tell you? Depending on, on the scholar that you're talking to, if you go to a Hyundai dealership and ask what kind of automobile you ought to buy, the Hyundai dealer isn't gonna say, go buy a Toyota or a Renault. The Hyundai dealer is going to recommend what he or she believes in. So if you ask a scholar, Joe, and the scholar already has a prejudice or a bias, that scholar is going to tell you to line up where he or she lines up or strongly suggest that you do. So you've got to pick your scholars very, very carefully. In fact, it's probably best if you're trying to figure out if Christianity is true, to major less in follow uh, scholars, maybe minor in scholars, but major in the Word of God and investigate the Word of God. okay, this time.
1: I, I would probably start off in prophecy. One of the greatest things about the Bible and, and one of the things that brought me to believe in the Bible was looking at the prophecies, especially of Daniel of Revelation, of Matthew of Isaiah. There's so many fulfilled prophecies. uh, The list could just go on and on.
0: Uh, Let's let's throw some out there. In Micah 5 and verse 2, the Bible states where Jesus the Messiah would be born. Names Bethlehem of Ephrath. That's number one. Let's go backwards and forwards here.
1: Uh, Daniel chapter 2, in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, Daniel then comes and has the same dream and then interprets it for Nebuchadnezzar. There's 14 different nations or kingdoms, and God names quite a few of them in the books of Daniel
0: and then over in the New Testament as well. So you got Daniel, Daniel chapter two. You could say Daniel chapter seven. And then you have Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm. It begins with the verse that says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You read through Psalm 22 and it foretells Christ's experience on the cross.
1: What else? you got Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, there's a long list of things that Jesus says are going to be happening in the world very shortly before he returns, and we're seeing those things
0: happening every day in the world around us. Right. So, there's lots and lots of prophecy and fulfilled prophecy. What else would you say that uh, attests to the what we believe is the fact that Christianity is true? I'd
1: say archaeology is a huge one. When you take a look at the archaeological findings over the years, there have been so many times when historians and archaeologists said, well, there's no evidence of this in real life archaeology that we find in the Bible. And then they discover something, uh, the Tel Dan Stele, for one, that has the House of David, a reference to the House of David located on it. You've got the Cyrus cylinder that attests to the fall of Babylon. So over and over again, archaeologists have unearthed things that show that the Bible history is true.
0: And I wonder if perhaps the greatest evidence that Christianity is true is the fact that the Bible, that the God of heaven, has power to change a human heart. Nothing else has that power to change a human heart and bring hope and bring new life and new focus, victory over bad habits, uh, to make a new person where once there was an old person. The Bible can do that. The Christ of the Bible can do that. Christianity can do that. I know you may be tempted to turn your back on Christianity because of Christians, but that would be like turning your back on America because of Americans. That just does not make a whole lot of sense. So Joe, we hope that you'll be encouraged and I'm glad that you reached out because clearly you're considering your atheism uh, and considering Christianity. I hope you'll do that. Read the Bible with an open heart and maybe even pray that God would reveal Himself to you. And I believe that He will. One more question here this side of the break. A question from Damian who says, what did Jesus mean when He said that on Judgment Day, that for some people it would be better to be an inhabitant of Sodom or Gomorrah? very interesting
1: uh Damian, let's consider a story a parable that jesus told this one happens to be found in luke chapter 12. in luke chapter 12 beginning in verse number 35 here's what it says luke chapter 12 beginning in verse 35 jesus says let your waist be girded and your lamps burning and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding that when he comes and knocks they may open to him immediately Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat, and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect." He continues in verse 42. Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone
0: to whom much is given, from him much will be required. I think that's the point right there, isn't it? You've got Sodom and who clearly had some understanding but it's not like Jesus lived in their midst, performed miracles, healed people. It's not like the disciples fanned out and went through the place doing wonders and preaching the gospel. That's right, but if you've heard the gospel and you've seen Jesus or you've met him or
1: he has been revealed to you in a very real way and you say, no, not interested, it would be better that you hadn't known of him at all, like Sodom and Gomorrah, than to know and to be held accountable for it.
0: I tell you what, I don't think, I don't think this means that God is vindictive. This is not suggesting, well, you knew, so I'm gonna really get you. It's not that. It's not merely that you knew, but you knew you tasted and you, you spat it out. God came near and you rejected Him. He pleaded with your heart and you fended Him off. And that's, that's really, it's not wise. I don't wanna use the word dangerous because this starts to sound threatening but it's not wise, it's not good stewardship of your life to have God come near you, and then you simply say to that God, you know, fine, but no thanks. I don't wanna do that. The Bible says, to whom much is given of that person, much will be required. That's right. Yeah, so if God has come near you and knocked on the door of your heart, don't fend God off, don't keep it at arm's length. Welcome God into your heart and into your life uh, and let God make you what He wants to make you. Too many times we are the ones trying to make ourselves what we simply can't make ourselves. Christianity is about surrendering to God and letting God do His thing. Let God do His thing in your life. It will be powerful. Now, to get your questions to us, please email us, lineuponline at iiw.org. line, of course, that's one word, at IIW.org, we'll get your questions, and in a future program, we would love to answer your Bible question. We'll be back with more line upon line in just a moment.
1: Salt is a life changing experience. You know, when I first got here, I was under the impression of what can I do? It's what God is doing
0: through me. A lot of the day will not only include training, but also the application of that training.
1: Now, I'm not scared to talk about Jesus.
0: Being a part of the SALT program will take your relationship and ministry for Christ to the next level. Hi, this is John Bradshaw from It Is Written. If you've ever ministered in your local church, it's likely you've come across a situation like this. Picture it with me. You're a lay leader in your church. It's Sabbath morning. You get a call from the pastor traveling from two towns over to come and preach in about 30 minutes. Of course, the pastor is having car trouble and won't make it in time. So, what do you do? Well, the good news is you are prepared because you've already received a DVD with four of It Is Written's new programs entitled In the Word. In the Word was created specifically for situations like this. If your church would like to hear, powerful sermons straight from the Word of God that will build your faith in God and shed light on culturally relevant topics, this is exactly what you've been searching for. Maybe your church doesn't have a full-time pastor. Maybe the pastor's come down with the flu the night before. Whatever the situation is, I would encourage you to write to us at intheword at iiw.org to find out how your church can receive these sermons completely free of charge. You could call us at 888 888- 664-5573-888-664-5573 or write to P.O. Box 6, Chattanooga, Tennessee 37401. Now again, you can email us at in intheword at iiw.org or call us toll free at 888-664-5573 to find out how you can get new sermons delivered to you every month absolutely free.
1: Planning for your financial future is a vital aspect of Christian stewardship. For this reason, It Is Written is pleased to offer free planned giving and estate services. For information on how we can help you, please call 800-992-2219. Call today or visit our website, HisLegacy.com. Call 800-992-2219. Welcome back, we're here on Line Upon Line where we are taking your questions about the Bible and seeing what we can do to find biblical answers. And we have a question that is very much about the Bible. Uh, This particular question, John, comes from Marlene. And Marlene asks, isn't the Bible of Catholic origin?
0: Well, you know, if you're a Roman Catholic, you've probably been taught that it is. If you're a Protestant, you've probably been taught that it isn't. So, uh, let's consider this. The idea is that the Roman Catholic Church gave the Bible, gave the canon of Scripture to the world at the Council of Nicaea. And of course there's some truth to that. But how did the Bible come together? How was the canon, which is what you call the, the collection of the books of the Bible, what's referred to as, how did the canon come into existence? Really, the the truth of the matter is that the books of the Bible selected themselves. What I mean by that is this. There were a lot of um, writings floating about the believing world once upon a time. When you had the writings that were known to have come from Moses, for example, no argument about that. Some of the other books of the Bible by people well-known to be prophets of the Bible, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, no argument about that. The Psalms, no argument about that. But then there were other books, and the church, let's call it that, had to decide which books were going to be authoritative. By the time you get to Jesus, you have Jesus quoting many prophets. So these words were recognized as being inspired. There were certain tests that the, the books that people were discussing were put put to. Uh, Who was the Bible writer? What was the Bible writer's relationship to what was going on there? Uh, Did they pass the smell test? That's a pretty rough way of saying, did they shake out to seem like they were believable? Some books like the Gospel of Thomas, just not really believable. They they didn't, they didn't smell right. They didn't sit right. They didn't make an entirely, they did not entirely make a whole amount of sense. Uh, And then did these books support or contradict those other writings that were indisputably of uh, divine origin? So when you put that together, by the time you get to the Council of Nicaea, the canon had essentially been recognized. There may be a tweak here or a tweak there. So what I don't want you to think is that there was no Bible. The Council of Nicaea got together and said, oh, leave this to us, and they came back with 66 books and said, here's your Bible. Really wasn't quite like that. The church that was in authority over much of Christianity at the time did convene and did say, do we accept this? Do we believe we need to modify this? And the, the canon that was delivered through the Council of Nicaea differs v- in very small ways to the collected scriptures that had been compiled before that time. One thing, though, about the Council of Nicaea, if you say it was the Bible of Catholic origin, you've got to account for the apocryphal books, books like Wisdom, 1 Maccabees, Second Maccabees, Tobit. As a matter of fact, I need to ask you this. Have you read Daniel chapter 13? Well, it's not in my Bible, oddly <laughs> enough. It's bizarre. Read the story of Bell and the dragon in the book of Daniel, the apocryphal story of Bell and the dragon. Read Daniel chapter 13. You read that and you go, whoa, this is way out of character with the rest of Daniel. It doesn't belong there, it was added later. And the Roman church did agree that the books of the Apocrypha, which Protestants reject because of their lack of authenticity, the church agreed, yeah, let's put these into the Bible, let's keep these. So, to summarize, uh, the Bible, when I say the Bible kinda selected itself or chose itself, I hope you understand the spirit of what I mean. The believers of the day recognize these books are the ones that we say are authoritative. There were discussions about some. So essentially, Eric, the books of the Bible chose themselves. That's a, that's a very simplistic statement. But the church recognized certain books were uh, authoritative. Others were rejected. The Council of Nicaea said, we essentially agree with that. And we have the Bible that we have today, minus the Apocrypha, because they're not trustworthy or reliable.
1: Very good. Okay. We have another question, and this one comes from Rocky. And Rocky has a very interesting question. He says, can you explain Deuteronomy 28, verses 53 through 55 now deuteronomy 28 verses
0: 53 through 55 it's a very interesting passage uh, let me read it for you starting in 53 deuteronomy chapter 28. 28 verse 53 all right thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters which the lord thy god hath given thee in the siege and in the straitness wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee this does not sound like a command more like a consequence so that the man that is tender among you and very delicate as I shall be evil toward his brother, toward the wife of his bosom, toward the remnant of his children, which he, hath, which he shall leave, so that he will not give to any of them of the flesh of his children whom he shall eat, because he hath nothing left him in the siege and in the straitness wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee in all thy gates. What in the world? That doesn't sound like a very pleasant experience. Not at all. So what's the context of this?
1: So what Jesus is doing here, or what we're taking a look at, what the Bible is doing here, is looking at blessings and cursings
0: uh, of the Lord. when, When we choose to follow Him, or when we choose to go our own way. So is this God saying, you follow me and I'll bless you, you don't follow me, and man, am I gonna get you? Uh, no, God's
1: not out to get us, but what he's telling us is he has the way of life, he has the way of salvation, and if we choose to follow him, we're gonna be blessed as a result of it. Now, if we choose to wander away, it's not God chasing after us with a, with a stick, but we're turning our back on those blessings and
0: we're we're reaping the natural results of turning away from God. Life is found in God. And when you separate yourself from God, you separate yourself from life. When you tell God to take a hike, you're saying, I've got this, God. Let me worry about my own self. And God was saying to his people, Israel, reject me, things are going to go bad. You're going to be invaded. There will be a siege. You'll be without food. Some of you all will go so far as to eat your children. This is God saying, you don't want that. You don't want to run from me and face this on your own. You want to be with me. This is pleading. It's not threatening. This is God merely saying, you want to know the consequences of you rejecting me? This is what that will look like. So the question is, knowing that and being told that by God, who in the world in their right mind would run from God? No, but you've got a lot of
1: people who have this idea that God's out to get them. He's not. He's out to save us. That's right. He's trying his very best, but it's up to us whether we decide we want to follow his guidance in life, or
0: whether we want to reap the results of going our own way. And in the world today, I think it's, it's not hard to see where sin has got the world. And it's not that if you believe in God, only good things will happen, because that's not true either. Just like the rain falls on the just and on the unjust, I guess the drought or the flood afflicts and affects the just and the unjust. But look around the world and ask yourself where humanity has got itself without God. And look at the crime and the sin and so forth, which is the work of the devil. And that ought to be enough for people like you and me to say, I've got to run to God. I want to be with God. I need this God in my life. And God would even say to us today, to try to live this life without me is crazy. Sure, you may be successful in your work, but really? You might earn some money, you might gain some notoriety, you might have some fun, but really, what then? So friend, we want you to, we want to encourage you to think about the what then. The blessings and the cursings is God saying, if you stay close to me, things are gonna work out great. If you run from me and cut me out of your life, things can't go well. Friend, things cannot go well if you choose to live outside of God. One more question, and this is from Linda. There's time for this one, I think. The Bible says that women should not have braided hair. What's that about? Let me read you from 1 Timothy 2 and verse nine, in like manner also, and I'm reading from the King James, so the, the words are a little old fashioned, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. I think we understand what that means, yep. right? With shamefacedness, uh, if I were to look, I even have a little, uh, a little thingy here that says, with propriety, uh, not looking all flirty and, and right. so forth really. Uh, and sobriety. I think that's straightforward, not with broidered hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly array. What, clearly God is talking about outward show and outward adornment and decoration, but braided hair? It depends on what you mean by
1: braided hair. Now, back in the first century when uh, when Timothy, when Paul was writing this to Timothy, you find a similar passage over in 1 Peter chapter three. What he's talking about here is trying to draw attention to yourself. You look at the way that some of the, the women braided their hair back then. Look at uh, historical documents and so forth. They went to, to incredible extents to weave uh, wire meshes into their hair so that their hair would stick out at different directions and in, in all kinds of shapes and so forth. It was all about drawing attention to me. Now, if somebody wants to braid their hair to keep it out of their eyes, that's a whole different animal.
0: Yeah, or even to look smart or to look sure. nice. Nothing wrong with looking nice. If you're beautiful, you know, like Eric and I, you just kind of can't help the fact that you look, that you look good, and that's okay. And you need to comport yourself and, and uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, Not adorn, not decorate, style in a certain way. You have to cut your hair. It's good to look good. It's okay to look modern if, if modern is okay. It's okay to look fashionable if fashionable is okay. But if you start your day saying, I want to draw attention to moi, I want to be outstanding. I want people to notice me. Uh, but you, you're often left field. For the Christian, it's I want people to see Jesus in me. We ought to look okay. If all the Christians went around looking frumpy and dowdy, that'd be a disaster. So, so, you know, l- look your best. But the point is here where Paul was speaking about broidered hair, don't be drawing attention to you for the sake of drawing attention to you. That's what we call selfishness. And that doesn't square with the Word of God. Hey, I think we're done. All right, another one. Thanks for this. It's been okay. And thank you for your questions. If you have Bible questions that you'd like to get to us, here's the email address, lineuponline at iiw.org. Lineuponline at iiw.org. Thanks, Eric. Much appreciated. Looking forward to doing another one. And we'll see you next time. With Eric Flickinger, I'm John Bradshaw. This has been Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written.